0: excuse me he, he's not he's not Paul and I had. we've had fun and over the last years and Margie getting to know them and, and Tim and Denise also it's you you've got a very wonderful pastor so treat uh, him well he's a great great guy and we've enjoyed him getting to know him very much how many of you I, I know Paul was involved in first responders any of you first responders here on the fire department or anything any, ever ever do that okay you know when you have a when you have an emergency and a disaster strikes, tornado, hurricane, mudslide, fire, whatever, you always expect to see first responders showing up. It's just something you expect them to do, and and they're there on on the spur of the moment, and they're there to use the special skills they've honed, the equipment that they've been trained on, to get you out of a major disaster. You know, when you think about first responders, you look to them, you expect them to come, And they they always show up. Uh, Now, some rescues are are different from others. Some rescues, you know, I've worked with the Jamestown Police Department for a little over four years, and and I've seen first responders sometimes fix something very quickly in a matter of a few minutes. Some rescues, though, take hours, days. If you remember just, I don't know how many years back, down in South America, I think it was Peru, where those miners were trapped underground for, for over a month, I believe it was. And they worked for weeks to get those guys safely out of that collapsed mine. When you think about rescuers, you know, rescuers, um, they don't always have success. Uh, sometimes, and it's usually, it's, I, I've never seen a rescue fail from a lack of effort. I've never seen that. They'll try like crazy for as long as they can, till they're exhausted. But sometimes people don't realize that the victim doesn't always let you rescue them. One of the most scary situations you could find yourself in to rescue somebody is if a person's drowning and she's talking to the lady. Because one of the things that happens is they panic and they, they start thrashing. And it's not un, unheard of to hear of a rescuer drowning along with the victim who is trying to fight them and pull them down. Sometimes you'll hear about a victim in a, in a fire and they refuse to answer the, the call to come out the window, jump, do it. And sometimes you fail as a rescuer because they don't follow instructions. Sometimes you can't find the victim. We just saw on the news this last week of a 16-year-old boy who got trapped in his car. The seat folded down on him, and he called 911. And And for six hours, I believe it was... They couldn't find him until finally his parents found him and he was dead in the car. They could not locate this boy who was trapped in a power seat that was crushing the air out of him. It was too late when they found him. When you think about rescues, you and I are part of a spiritual rescue team, search and rescue team. People who are trapped not in a a crushed car or caught up in an avalanche of snow or mud, but people who are trapped in their sins caught in, in the sins and on their way to hell, ready to die, go out into eternity. And as I think about that, I, I took the liberty to ask Pastor Tim if I could have a copy of one of your most important documents, your bulletin. No, not your bulletin. Your church covenant, constitution, articles of faith. I said, I want to see if it's similar to what we had at Bethel. Because in most Baptist churches, you have a somewhere tucked in there a statement about missions. And so in You're all familiar with Section 14 of your Articles of Faith. Anybody want to quote the first line for me? It starts out with, we. You don't want to do that. Okay, so I'll help you out here. Section 14 of your, your Articles of Statement of Faith says this, under evangelism, we believe it is the solemn obligation of every believer to be a personal soul winner and to support both foreign and home missions through the local church in order to carry out the Savior's command to give the gospel to the whole world. Ours is similar, a little worded a little differently. But most Baptist churches have something in there that says, we are expecting our members to do evangelism. I want to use a little object lesson here. Today, I I would challenge you, you're at the corner of Promises Avenue and Reality Way. Because when we have people in our church in Bethel, when they joined, we said, this is what we expect you to not only believe but to do. And one of them was, share your faith. But reality says not everybody does that, do they? I'm not going to embarrass you and say, is there anyone here who's never shared their faith once in their life? I'm not going to do that. But we often make promises that we don't keep. And we're at that intersection today of promises, way, and reality. You know, are we keeping the promises we make? And so today I want to talk about, I did years ago promise to rescue the lost. And when you joined this church, literally that's what you agreed. It says, we believe... It's the, every person, oh, every person, soul winner, not just the pastors, not just the missionaries, but us. And so today I want to challenge you very briefly before you fall asleep with a full stomach. I promise to rescue the lost, and I want to challenge you to think about some interesting things. First of all, I promise to rescue the lost by loving them. You know, you think about loving them, Christ loved all sorts of people. All of them. There was never a person he met that he didn't love. Very quickly in Matthew, it says this. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you have some... Well, Oh, it doesn't matter. I'm only here today anyway. How many of you have some great neighbors? How many of you have at least one neighbor you wish was not your neighbor? I've had one of those. Okay. Uh, we, we had a man in our right across the street... And, and everybody, I, I tried over the 14 years we lived there to, to be a friend with this man, and everybody else didn't want anything to do with him because he was he was kind of like the Grinch. That's putting it mildly. Uh, but I, I, you know, when he had a heart surgery, I went to visit him in the hospital, and, and nobody else they were just good for you, good. You yeah. uh, God says we're to love our neighbors, but He also says not just the good neighbors, but everybody. In Matthew 5:44, He says, "I say to you." Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And I I had to look at my neighbor and say, you know what? God said I'm supposed to love this guy and to be kind to him and to try to show what Christ's love is like. Even if my other neighbors aren't doing it, that's what I'm supposed to do. And so we see Jesus loved people. He demonstrated it with a compassionate heart. He showed sympathy when they were hurting. He empathized with them. He had concern for them. He showed kindness and care. Remember how often it says he saw the multitudes and he was moved with what? Compassion. It's like you're hurting. I hurt for. You. I mean, he he could have easily said, huh, bad day, tough luck. That's the way life goes. He didn't. I mean, he cared about people. Whether they were sick or their loved one had died, they were hungry. He cared about people, wandering aimlessly in their in their simple life and entombed and, and in. Demonic possession, he loved them and cared for them. He prayed for them. Remember, one of the last things Jesus did before he went to the cross was in the garden, he's praying. And he said this, I do not pray for these alone, talking about his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Don't raise your hand on this one, but when was the last time you prayed for someone who was lost to become a believer? Well, let's see, back in 12, 11, has it been that long? Jesus prayed for people to come to know him. Jesus did more than just talk about and emphasize He wanted to, let me go back here one thing. He, he attracted lost sinners. One of the things that Jesus did was he sought out sinners. And as we heard this morning, Jesus was the one that he looked for people to connect with. Why would the Son of God, perfect, holy, never sin. want to associate with sinful people. Not just good people, but sinful people. He didn't avoid it. And again, I can think of people, um, I, I, I will admit this because it's been enough years, I'm not sure where this person is, but in my first church where we're going back to now, as we retire, we're going back to Niles, Ohio, we're going to become members again of the first church where I was a youth pastor. And I hope this person... Well, I shouldn't say this, but when I was a young something, youth pastor, there was a a man in that church who was about my age, I think, maybe a little older, drove me bananas. His personality was, shall I say, different. I thought at the time it was weird, strange. His voice was, I couldn't even begin to imitate his voice, but it was such a voice, it drove me crazy. I didn't want to be around this person. And it it was so bad at times that if I saw him come into the back and I was up front, I would find some place to go. And I'm thinking, this is a fellow believer that I don't want to be anywhere near because his personality rubs me the wrong way. His voice is driving me crazy. His questions were just, I didn't want to be around him. I tried to avoid him. Jesus didn't avoid people just because they were different or weird strange-sounding, had peculiar habits or personality quirks. He sought them out. You think about his conversations with with the, the lost. He didn't speak condescendingly to them. He was kind, gracious. He lifted their load. A lot of people he met were carrying guilt, shame, and fear, confusion, feeling condemned and sad. That's so why he said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. One of the things that Jesus didn't do was he was never shocked by their conduct. I mentioned I, I have had the opportunity, and honestly, a tremendous privilege to serve as Jamestown Police Department chaplain for the last four-plus years until I just retired. And, and one of the things, they'd never had a chaplain before, and the police chief offered me a call one day and said, would you like to be our chaplain? He'd been in the military and asked if I had any interest in being a chaplain. And uh, I said, what's the job description? And he said, "Uh, there isn't any. We don't have a job description. It's just if somebody gets hurt in the line of duty or killed, we want somebody there to do something for them. And that was literally what the job description was. And uh, so I said, well, let me pray about it. And I thought about it, Dr. Dottie, and we decided let's do this. One of the things that I learned right away was they were they were terrified of preachers sitting in a police car for eight hours with them. Ooh, you know, the, the very first time I okay, here's Pastor Reed, our new chaplain. Um, I think he's going to ride with, and they'd call out the name of this officer, and, you, and that officer would go heads down. It's like, oh no, he's going to preach an eight-hour sermon, have three invitation hymns, and probably take two offerings. One of the things I learned was, uh, and one of the things before I, before I ever went to a chaplain's conference, I, I fortunately was able to go to two chaplain's conferences, because being a police chaplain is very different from being a pastor, very different. One of the things I, I had decided to do ahead of time was I will never preach to these guys unless they bring up the subject, because I don't want to put them in a, in a situation, you know, where can you go? You know, if the preacher is going at it and you're uncomfortable, you can get up and start coughing and act like you've got a problem and walk out and just keep going. When you're in a car, a police car with a chaplain, you can't go anywhere. You have to stay in the car to finish out your shift. And what are you going to do? Ask the chaplain to get out on the corner of Fourth and Washington and find your way home. You, yeah. So, they were very self-conscious of their their language. Police officers have their own language, just like many other unsafe people have their own language. Um, and they were very they were very conscious of it. And as soon as they would let off, you know, one of these words or phrases or something. They go, oh, my excuse my French spark sorry. They were as nervous as could be. And one of the things I learned at the conference for chaplains was this. They, they told us this. When you start treating them the way they are, and don't go, oh, you know. He says, when you just, when you don't react negatively to who they are, and they start reverting back to how they were, and they don't start going, oh, excuse me, you know you've been accepted by it. See, Jesus and I had to learn, you have to accept people with all the sin. They're acting like a sinful person should act. So I didn't act surprised. Now, you know, sometimes I tried to make them feel a little more at home. I'd say, and, and one time it was in the squad room before we went out, and, and somebody said something, and another person made a comment, hey, the chaplain's here. And, and everybody's nervous, and I said, guys, I'll be honest with you, it's not what I use on my Sunday morning sermons. I, I don't talk that way, but I said, you know, I understand where you're coming from, but I said, you know. Appreciate the sensitivity. Try to make a little light of it. They knew their language wasn't appropriate. They knew it wasn't acceptable to a preacher, let alone probably God. So one of the things Jesus did was he didn't treat them with oh, shock and awe. It's like, oh my, I've never heard this one. He treated them like people who were sinners. Who that's that's their default mode. now they knew I didn't I didn't talk that way. They knew there were activities they were a part of that they would invite me to that I didn't participate in because they knew that's not what I would do. But they also knew, as I would often tell them, I love you. I will still ride with you. When your loved one's in the hospital, I'll be there for you. If you have a death, I will be at the funeral home for you. I will be there for you. Even though we may not talk alike or do the same activities, you're, you're important to me. And Jesus showed his love by accepting them for who they are. Now, did he want them to be different? Yes. But he wasn't condemning them at the time by saying, hey, change the way you, hey, if you're going to ride with me for eight hours, clean up your mouth. I never did. But by accepting them, I found that over the course of a few months, they started asking questions, spiritual questions, and then I would answer them, and the conversation doors were open. So, you know, one of the things that Jesus often did was offer hope because he loved them and, and accepted them. You know, most of those people came because literally they wanted what? They wanted a big meal or they wanted heal. That's why most people came to him. They, they had hope that something would be better physically. He liked something better. He was hoping they would take his spiritual gift of eternal life and forgiveness to them. As I think about this, you think, do you love people who are lost? Do you love people who are lost? second thing he did, he linked with them. He linked up to them uh, by his associations. Uh, Think of your circle of friends, people you associate with, church friends, work friends, neighbors, hobbies, sports, your circle of influence, the people you associate with, okay? the gas station attendant, the restaurant you go to, uh, same you know, all those people, uh, are you getting to know unsaved people? I'll be honest with you, one of the reasons I accepted the, the position of a police chaplain was this. I'm a pastor of a, of a church that has a Christian school. I'm dealing with Christian teachers, Christian leaders, Christian Sunday school teachers, dealing with all of them and their issues. And you know what? I was so busy doing working with believers, I was not finding time to find a connection to unbelievers. Guess what? When I accepted the position of a, of a chaplain, I got around unsaved people, and it opened doors. It's so easy to associate only with those of your comfort zone, Christians you think about that, not only association, but what about your friendships? If you think about today, who are my friends? Do you have any unsaved friends that you associate with? Do you ever invite unsaved neighbors or coworkers or friends to your house for a cookout or for ice cream? Hmm. Uh, we should have, in our circle of friends, unbelievers. Did Jesus hang out with unbelievers? All the time. Because how are you going to reach them if you don't associate with them? Now, does that mean you're going to do everything they do? No, I'm not going to go down to the bar. I've been in a bar before, but it's been in police duty. And still felt kind of weird walking in to do a raid in a bar. But, uh, you know, I didn't go in to have a, a drink with my buddies uh, in the bar. They, they knew that's not where I was going to be. But I could still have friendships with them and, and link with them. How about acts of kindness? When you think about acts of kindness, there are you actually look for ways to connect with unsafe people. You say, well, how did you ever get asked to be a police chap? And this was a, a volunteer position. was not paid or anything. About nine years ago, I told our church, we need to find a way to connect with people outside of our church in our community and let them know we, as a church, care about them. So I said, we've got rescue, volunteer, fire people that come and, and do our, you know, whatever we have, an emergency call, they would come. Uh, and so... Let's let's do a picnic. We had a picnic for all of our first responders, the volunteers in our community. Uh, We had a great picnic lunch. We had games, activities, free giveaways. Uh, Did we share the gospel? Yeah, very briefly we gave, and we put a track in every gift bag. But it gave us an opportunity, and we did that a couple different years. Uh, Later on, we decided, what, what about the city? Yes, our address is Jamestown, but we're just outside the city limits. So I said, why don't we do something for the city police and fire department? So at Christmas one time, I said, and we had some ladies who are great cooks. I said, let's bake. I said, I don't want you to go and get a Wegmans cookie. I don't want you to, you know, no Oreos. I want you to make your best, fanciest Christmas cookies you can make. Individually wrap them in cellophane. Put a fancy ribbon on them. We're going to put a dozen in a bag, a really fancy-looking bag, and we're going to write a note that says, Dear police officer, dear fireman, we at Bethel Baptist appreciate what you do. We we, we want you to know that... uh, we value your service. We're praying for you this entire month, and we just want you to know that, that we, we appreciate you. And we delivered those to every, and again with, with paid people, it was hard to get to every squad because there are different shifts and different schedules. But we did that. And I remember when I went to the police department, I told the chief, I said, uh, "We're doing this." I said, I'm, "I'm not. I don't want to be a chaplain. I'm just we just appreciate what you do." We did that a couple years, and so about four years later, when they decided they needed a chaplain. They said, hmm, that church cares. And four years later, they asked me to be their chaplain. Can you cook cookies? Yeah, you can bake cookies. Um, can you send a card to somebody who's sick? Yeah. Can you visit somebody when they have a death in the family? Yeah. Uh, you don't, you just don't go to the believers' funerals. What about your neighbors who are unsaved and they lose a loved one? I go through the obituaries every day looking. I don't recognize the names, but I look down to see if it's somebody that I know that was related to them just to connect and to send a card or to call them and say, hey, sorry for your loss. How about evangelism? You know, Jesus did evangelism, no doubt about it. Leighton Ford, who worked with Billy Graham for many, many years, wrote back in 1977 this funny and interesting story uh, in his Good News for Sharing. I'm going to read his account from Leighton Ford. And I think you'll appreciate and you'll understand that not much has changed since 1977. Here's what he wrote. I was speaking at an open-air crusade in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Billy Graham was to speak the next night and had arrived a day early. He came incognito and sat on the grass at the rear of the crowd. Because he was wearing a hat and dark glasses, no one recognized. Directly in front of him sat an elderly gentleman who seemed to be listening intently to my presentation. When I invited people to come forward as an open sign of commitment, Billy decided to do a little personal evangelism. Tapped the man on the shoulder, and he said, Would you like to accept Christ? I'll be glad to walk down with you if you want to. The old man looked at him up and down and thought it over for a minute, and then he said, Nah, I think I'll just wait till the big gun comes tomorrow night. Leighton Ford said, Billy and I have had several good chuckles over that incident. Unfortunately, it underlines how, in the minds of many people, evangelism is the task of the big guns, not the little shots. It's the pastor's job to do that. The missionary's job to do that. They're, the, they're getting paid to do that. Yet Jesus modeled for his disciples, no, it's, it's a job all of us do. It's something we all do. Remember Peter and John, when they were there in Acts, uh, the disciples were preaching boldly. They'd been in and out of prison. And it says, when the leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized they'd been with Jesus. The neat thing is this: ordinary men were talking about an extraordinary God. They were just talking about what they'd seen, what they'd experienced. You don't have to have a Bible theology degree. You don't have to have a seminary degree. You can share what Christ has done in your life. I had the privilege, a year and a half ago, to have one of those police officers call me on a Wednesday night at permitting just for permitting, Said, "I need to talk to you. Can I can I talk to you?" I said, "Okay, I've got church tonight." Uh, let me set up a, he said no I need to talk to you right now I said well I've got okay I've got about 40 minutes I can give you before church now fortunately that night instead of doing a bible study we had already planned to do a prayer time just to so, so people could come and go as they wanted to pray this 40 year old single man came into my office a man who earlier and, and this is a little strange because I had ridden with him one time and uh, the one time that really struck me me kind of funny was he said hey and he he never called me chaplain he called me uh, father he said father um i had a wreck on my motorcycle uh a year and a half or two years ago and i totaled my motorcycle and i was all banged up had to have shoulder surgery and," and he said i've got a new motorcycle and i'd like you to bless my motorcycle sometime this spring now you know baptist preachers don't normally go around blessing anything so especially motorcycles and so when, so when this guy calls me, I'm thinking, okay, he's not going to ask me to bless his motorcycle. Please, not that. Uh, and, and Sean calls, and he says, i got to meet So I said, come on over to the office. So he came over, and, and at 6 o'clock, and, he, and for the next two hours, we talked. And honestly, I'll be totally I'll honest. When he started, he says, my life stinks. It's terrible. Nothing works. And, and I'm thinking, this is a guy who's ready to commit suicide. Police suicides are about I, the number one cause of their death is suicide. It's terrible, the pressure, the stress. And I thought, this guy, is good. he wants to commit suicide, and he's trying to have me talk him out of it. He wasn't there. He just said, you know what? Life stinks. I had the privilege of leading him to Christ that night. And for the last year and a half, I've discipled him every week. Um, he, even as a brand-new Christian, was starting to tell people at the station, hey, I've got something that's really awesome. I've got a peace and a joy, and and I found something. I, had he, learned, he didn't know where the books of the Bible were. Let alone, But he was sharing what he'd already learned as a baby Christian. You don't have to have a degree to share Christ. You know, Jesus spoke to people about all kinds of issues. Uh, there was a young salesman that was frustrated because he, he lost a big sale. And he sat down with his manager and he said, you know, I guess it just goes to prove that you, know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And his manager said, son, let me, let me give you some advice. Your job is not to make him drink. Your job is to make him thirsty. Sometimes we fail to witness because we've tried and we failed and they didn't drink and we feel like we're the failure. It's not our job to, to, to make them drink. Our job is to create a thirst in them. He saw enough in my life to know that I had, I had something that he wanted. He's become a dear friend. Two other officers have started coming to Bethel because of him, sharing his story. Do you create a thirst in unsaved people by the way you, you live? Your compassion for them, your love for them, your interest in them, sending cards, giving them a hug when they're hurting? Uh, we need to link to the lost and not isolate ourselves from them. But thirdly, we need to promise to rescue the lost by not only loving them, linking to them, but by laboring zealously for the lost. To be zealous, are any of you football fans? I assume Buffalo Bill fans. Any Pittsburgh Steelers fans by chance? Thank you! Lord bless you. Okay. Uh, you will appreciate this. Uh, if you are a football fan, you know football fans do some really weird things to demonstrate their loyalty to their their constituents, uh, you know I I prefer this guy up here myself. But you know, any of you wearing graders on your head lately, or cheese heads, or you paint your I would never paint my belly. I just it's not a pretty picture, and we don't want to go there. But when you think about football fans, they are they are I mean they'll sit on cold hard seats through 40 degree below windshield blizzard and they think it's great. You preach 20 minutes and they think you preach way too long. Uh, <laughs> They will slap high fives with somebody they have no idea who that person is, you know. Uh, they, they are what we might call passionate, enthusiastic uh, in, their, in their sports, in their love for sports. Uh, I came across this interesting statistic. Uh, years ago, some millionaires gave these guidelines qualities that contributed to their success. They said ability and knowledge, only 5% of their success was due to that. Discipline, 10%. But 40% of their success was from attitude and enthusiasm. We saw a man this morning who was very enthusiastic about his work. You could tell he's worked with college kids. He has a communication skill that relates to them. He's passionate about what he does. It's a tough ministry to work on a secular campus doing it. Okay, this is where you might want to become a non-Baptist. We're not exactly the most enthusiastic people in the world, are we? Baptists tend to, we have our doctrine, we know our word. I can teach, I can preach, but I want to do it with as little emotional energy as possible. See, I grew up in a Baptist church. I grew up in a GRBC church, okay? And you were not even allowed to go... You couldn't point a finger at anybody. You couldn't, you know, uh, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't say amen. If you said amen, everybody would go, you know, it was the unbroken rule. You couldn't say, you couldn't even grunt out loud in that church, okay? Uh, because we might become charismatic. You know, we didn't want to be one of those happy people, okay? Uh, and so we kind of grew up thinking that we're slow and we're steady and we don't have to be emotional. We just kind of plod through life and just get there. Now, I'm not the most emotional. You know, again, some of it is your personality. I understand that. But how much enthusiasm do we put into ministry, trying to reach people for Christ? Do we love it? Uh, though I'm retiring after 36 and a half years of pastoral work, uh, I'm still going to preach, hopefully occasionally on weekends. I'm going to be working a secular job for a while, just because I need something to do. I can't go from doing something 60 hours a week to nothing. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting back into a secular lifestyle—not lifestyle, work—or lifestyle. work that lifestyle i am going to—I'm going to give up that, that pastoral role there and just. Yeah, you want to see my new tattoo? I'm right. No, I don't. I'm looking forward to getting back into a work. I haven't worked in the secular workforce since I was in college. You know, to actually work with, you know what? Because I've been hanging out with with unbelievers for the last four and a half years, I'm kind of broken into what to expect. And it's okay. Because I can still have a ministry with people, whether it's in the police force at Niles or, or at Walmart as the greeter, or whatever it might be. How enthusiastic is your evangelistic efforts, when you, whether it's teaching release time, whether it's Sunday school, Iwana, whether it's sharing your faith, how much passion you put in energy. Paul said, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I'm loved. Even if you don't appreciate it, I'm going to pour everything I got into it. That's how, that's how we should be. Now, you can't ride on emotion all the time because emotion can wear you out. You can, you can run out of energy if it's your only emotion. But we need to have zeal. Zeal for the Word. Well, let me just, before you fall asleep here, a couple of quick thoughts. If I'm going to fulfill my promise to reach the lost, Christ set out to reach Him, we're supposed to set out to reach Him. We know that in the Great Commission, He tells us to go into all the world. Just before He we went back to heaven, He said, you're to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the whole world. It's our jobs to do that. Christ came to reach the lost. I gonna ask you this, Are you, whether you realize it or not, you are part of a search and rescue team. You're a search and rescue member. You may never go out when that fire, I assume you have a fire alarm that goes off here, and everybody that's on that team runs down there, gets the, the address, and they go flying as fast as they can with their blue lights flashing, and they get there. And they do the best they can to rescue somebody. You and I, we don't have a, an audible siren going off, but there's a sound that says, I'm short. Sure. The day is far spent. Time is now. We've been equipped by God. We have the Word of God. We have the Holy Spirit of God. from powers Motivated? We should be motivated by the fact that some of those people we know, might even be family members you really care about, a good friend you care about, is, is going to die and go to hell if somebody doesn't reach him. Can I make them drink? No. I have a husband and wife couple that was connected with the, fire, or the police department, both of them unsaved. Shared the gospel with them both times. He's dying of cancer. She's scared to death of of dying. You'd think that'd be an open door. And and I've shared the gospel plenty of times. They know our church is praying for them, but they haven't made that choice yet. I can't can't force them to make that choice. All I can do is say, here's what God offers And pray that God would, would use what I have to create a thirst in them to want the same thing. So as you think about where you're at today, you're on the corner of Promises Avenue and Reality Way. Decision. I made a promise. Is that the reality of my life? Am I actually trying? It's not your job to get a bunch of notches in your belt. Look at all the people I want to Christ. Our job is how many times have I tried to share my faith through my words, passing out a track, showing love and compassion, You know, one of the things that that has to happen is sometimes you have to show people you care before you can share. You have to let them know you care about them. My first two years of being a chaplain, which was a mission field, I considered a mission field, I didn't get to talk too much about spiritual things. The last two years, I had people calling me, asking if they could come to my office or if I could talk to them on the phone or I could meet them somewhere to talk about spiritual issues. I was their pastor. Most of those people never went to church. It took time to earn that confidence. It took time for me to prove to them I really love you. And you know what? Even though you use language I don't like and you you drink certain beverages I don't drink or you go to places I don't go, I still love you. I still accept you. And I'm still going to take care of you. I'm going to show God's love for you. And you know what? That's what earned me the right, the opportunity, to share my, my heartfelt beliefs with them. Don't ever get to the point where you feel like I'm a failure because maybe I've never led somebody to Christ. The mission field, it's its a job that we all work at. Some have the gift of evangelism, and maybe like a Billy Graham, they, they can lead tons of people to Christ. If, even if you don't have that gift, we're to do the work of evangelism. So today the choice is simply, am I going to live on the fact that I made a promise, but I don't really intend to keep it? Or am I going to go down reality way and, and actually continue continue to or begin to develop a lifestyle that causes people to thirst for what I want. People, when they saw Christ, knew there was something about Him. The woman at the well, the maniac who was healed. People would say, I want what you've got. And hopefully they're saying that to us. Or salt, not too salty, but salty enough to create a thirst. A light that says, hey, there's hope in your world of darkness. What is it about you? Can I talk to you about it? And I would encourage you, just as you're doing here in Sherman and in, in the areas that you work in the community here, continue to realize missions, that's great to send people around the world. But if it weren't for people doing missions right here, you couldn't send any of those people around the world. And it's just as important what you and I do here in our world as it is around the world. You see, the place, my daughter went to China for two years and taught English as a second language. But you know what? She would never have gone there if she hadn't been considering doing mission work here first in homeland. That's why she went somewhere else. And it, it, don't be afraid of God calling you to, to be a missionary somewhere far off land. I, I feared that for years. That's why I didn't want to go into ministry until I was late in my 20s. I was scared God was going to send me to Timbuktu. And I found out there was a real place called Timbuktu. And that really freaked me out. But when I got to the place where I said, okay, God, I know you don't want to be a missionary, but I know the pastor thing. And it means i got to share my faith. And, and, and by nature, I'm an introvert. I do not like standing in front of people. Over the years, God has taught me how to, how to over, overcome that. Um, and I'm so glad now that I look back. Many, many years ago when I was a teenager, one of my best friends said, you're going to be a pastor someday. My grandmother said, you're going to be a pastor one day. I laughed at him because I knew I couldn't do that. I couldn't share my faith with total strangers because I don't like to be in front of people. I don't like to talk to people. You know what? When you give in to God and say, "God, whatever you want me to do, that's okay," God gives you the ability, and He gives you some wonderful results of relationships you'll build with people who come to know your family—not only this one, the family of God. If you're at the corner. Which which way am I going to cross? Stick with just the promises, or reality? What choice is yours? Father, thank you for just the opportunity to spend some time today, just remembering the things that we have promised to do, not just to our local churches, but promises that we've made to you to continue to be faithful to you. You've called us. You've commissioned us. You've equipped us to uh, share our faith. You've told us even in those times when we don't know what to say, you'll give us the words to say. And so there's no reason why we we shouldn't. But Father, help us to live a life like Christ, a life of compassion, love, acceptance, graciousness, A life of mercy and forgiveness. Father, a life that says, someone greater than me loves you even more. And they gave their life. Father, I thank you for this missions conference, just the opportunity to listen to Gary this morning and be able to share some this afternoon. Throughout their month, as they've had this focus, may it just rejuvenate this church to continue the long legacy of missions work and missions emphasis and take it to the next level in your glory.